Hello, and welcome back to Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you. I'm Adam, an English teacher who went to China in 2014 and taught English in a small city near Shanghai. This podcast tells the story of my troubled first year, so if you're new to the show, I'd encourage you to start at the beginning. That said, alongside the main story, many episodes focus much more on other issues about Chinese history and culture, and you don't really need to be following the story to listen to that part. Okay, on with the show. As Louis Theroux would say near the conclusion of a documentary, my time in the cradle of elites was coming to an end, but I wanted to visit a water town one more time and see how it was doing. In fact, I wasn't sure if my time was coming to an end. Certainly the school year end was approaching, but I was unsure about whether to stay here for another year or do one. I just fancied moving to Shanghai, and Penny seemed keen to retreat to the mountains and plan another battle with the Chinese education system. She still thought that the Chinese staff here had something against her, just because she had a different approach to teaching. Should I stay or should I go? Either way, I did want to visit another water town, because they're just lovely. Just southeast of Suzhou, almost in Shanghai, whose sprawling metropolis extends greedily inland, is the ancient water town of Jinxi. I made it my weekend mission to cycle the 40 miles there, see the sights, stay overnight, and cycle back the next day. I booked a youth hostel, bid an emotional farewell to Jess, and set off on my giant, the bike that I'd bought, with a thousand RMB gift voucher from Angela's dad. The route first took me island hopping across lakes past endless bamboo hedgerows. Families had driven their large saloons off the road, onto the footpaths, to get a nice spot next to the water. It's one of those strange contradictions of modern China. In Shanghai's city parks, there are signs telling people to keep off the grass. While in beauty spots out here, families are literally driving across it. Why not let people sit on the grass? I asked a Chinese friend when I was in Shanghai. Once one person goes, everyone will follow, came the reply. The grass will be destroyed. Those familiar with China will probably recognise this wisdom. It got me wondering about the strange world of regulation and freedom or the perception of freedom, in China. The story goes that communist China is harshly regulated and restricted, while the West, especially America, is free like a Harley Davidson on the open road. Studies have attempted to work out how free people think they are in different countries, a tricky question because people's notions of freedom can change from country to country, or even within countries. An American Democrat and an American Republican often have very different ideas about what freedoms they have, and the Americans who most fervently bang on about freedom tend to be paranoid about the federal government which underwrites those freedoms. So it's interesting to note that findings show that Chinese citizens rate their freedoms higher than Americans rate their freedoms. But what are we to make of that, considering that Chinese media is so restricted, and American media is so hysterical and polarised? Does the media, the propaganda, explain it? There are other forces at play which change people's sense of freedom as they move through the leisures and challenges of life. While Westerners come up against annoying bureaucracy, the Chinese can ameliorate many a concern with guanxi, the cultural force which places relationships above almost everything else. And while in the West a person's home is their castle, and their land fiercely defended, in China there is more of a fluid notion about land and ownership, which, certainly to an outsider such as myself, gives a certain sense of freedom. Now this isn't the case in cities like Shanghai, where people, not just the wealthy, live in gated communities with a guard out front. But outside of that, you get a freedom to roam and not be fenced in. 
cycling through long, long roads in the countryside, flanked by fields of corn or rapeseed in all directions, is made all the more pleasant by the fact that there are no fences or hedgerows carving off different areas. This is really different in the UK, where you're constantly looking for public footpaths to get you through the fields and farms. The freedom to roam in China is seized upon by men wanting to relieve themselves beside a roadside tree, or play cards in the rubble of a demolished house. In Changshu, it wasn't uncommon to see men wandering around on patches of rubble beside the road, apparently doing nothing, as if they couldn't find anywhere else to stand. Other random patches of soil beside, say, a flyover, have become vegetable patches for enterprising locals. And the entrepreneurial spirit goes beyond cabbages. Huge numbers of young adults do online businesses in the light-touch regulation of internet commerce. Westerners, by contrast, tend to be hindered by rules and prohibitive fees. But this could be more by accident than design. The Chinese government is addicted to restrictions, and it's reasonable to suggest that they are simply catching up with the pace of change, still extending their control over what is a vast and varied country, where some still live in caves. China is probably the most sophisticated system for surveying its own citizens anywhere in the world, roping in big tech companies to do its bidding, and establishing an intrusive social credit system to judge citizens' trustworthiness. It's pretty chilling stuff. And while the casual bike ride through the countryside is very liberating, if you choose to take the bus, you could well get randomly stopped by police, who will check everyone's IDs, although, in my experience, not the foreigners. Too much hassle. Perhaps we can draw out the keep-off-the-grass situation into a broad metaphor. Maybe the Chinese will continue to walk on the grass until the signs go up everywhere, until even benign transgressions, like that, make it harder to apply for a mortgage or travel overseas. The Communist Party's current thirst for regulating the lives of their citizens does suggest that this is the direction we're heading in. I stopped at lunchtime for some street food, spiced noodles with mushrooms and meat floss, which, for the uninitiated, is pork which has been shredded to resemble hair, and tastes better than it sounds. In the fields, kites flew, and kids nipped around in their expensive trainers. Tour buses stopped and nattering middle-aged groups noisily disembarked. I finished my lunch and journeyed on. The remainder of the trip stretched out like a wind-dried noodle. It was all big roads which I'd picked for simplicity, as I was relying on a map I'd sketched out in a book, having no map capabilities on my phone, this being 2015, remember? And me being something of a technophobe. But this put me alongside gas-guzzling trucks and the taxis which dart across the road seeking a few more inches of space, which was a bit of a downside to the trip. After five hours of pedalling, I started to wonder whether I was unfit or just lazy. I passed a family sat on a three-wheeler watching a father acrobatically scale a tree, which made me feel even less fit. The kid called me a make warren, American, which further made me wonder about my waistline. Jinshi is an old town surrounded by lakes, crisscrossed by rivers and canals, with bridges everywhere. The bridge density is higher than that of nearby Suzhou, the so-called Venice of the East. Jinshi has a tomb of a long-dead emperor's consort. She fell in love with the place while they were fleeing one of the many sketchy situations that people endured 800 years ago, and the town took her name until 1993. The hostel is a modern wooden house among the older wooden houses. I parked my bike, 
checked in, dumped my clothes, and beelined for the beers that I'd spotted in a fridge at the entrance. The fridge wasn't plugged in, so my first taste of Jinshi was unpleasantly warm. The beer may have been unpleasantly warm, but thankfully the town was pleasantly warm. Warm weather, warm people, even warm colours. The late afternoon sun is reflected in the lakes and waterways that you're never very far from. Brown timber and tiles frame all the buildings, and red lanterns hang from them at the corners. An imperial yellow covered the walls of a temple across a wide, watery hole in the town, and weeping willows made everything soft. Covered walkways lined some of the rivers, and little flights of eroded steps lead down into the water. Everything flows perfectly. That's feng shui for you. After a long day on the busy roads, it was an oasis among the chaos, and although there are enough tourists to create a buzz, the locals don't seem to be outnumbered by them as they are in Suzhou's ancient streets. To the south is the most memorable landmark, a covered bridge which stretches out across the lake, which is full of lily pads. The bridge so low on the water, it's as if it's floating. In the middle it jumps up a couple of staircases to a central landing. It's a bridge to nowhere, just jetting out into the lake, a bridge for bridge's sake. This whole region south of the Yangtze River is called Jiangnan. It's an area defined by its culture and wealth, and the Jiangnan Yangyu, the Jiangnan Smoky Rain, warm, melancholy drizzle which falls here in the river delta. It's this region which has benefited so much from the mighty river, Asia's longest, the source of which is in the Tangula Mountains, some 3,000 kilometers away on the Tibetan Plateau. The Tibetan Plateau is a vast, isolated area, five times bigger than France, known as the Roof of the World, due to its average elevation of 5,000 meters. From that height, you're already more than halfway up Everest. Within the plateau is the Tibet Autonomous Region, with its 3.6 million inhabitants, making it the most sparsely populated area in China. Over many generations, the people here have become acclimatized to the harsh conditions including the altitude which makes breathing harder. Ethnic Han Chinese, who migrate to the area from the rest of China, struggle in a way that the locals don't. But these newcomers do get some benefits, the majority of the wealth on offer. All the good jobs, control of industry, the benefits of Beijing's investments. The locals, meanwhile, have their religion suppressed, their leader exiled, and their passports. Well, well, they don't have passports. And so we come to another one of China's most controversial domestic policies, the forced control over Tibet and its people. For an area which is so remote, so uninhabited, which has a different ethnic makeup, different religion, and a different political and cultural history, China has guarded its possession of Tibet jealously. Why is that? First, the history. At the turn of the 20th century, when the British Empire was the biggest in the world and the ailing Qing dynasty ruled China, Tibet was a protectorate state of the Qing. Tibet had existed in some form since the 7th century CE, either as an empire in its own right, or as a vassal state of the Mongols, or a patchwork of connected kingdoms. The Qing dynasty was established by the Manchus, who had invaded China from the north and seized Beijing in 1644. They went on to have the largest Chinese empire in all of China's fabled history. 
but by the 20th century, they're in terminal decline. As part of the great game rivalry with Russia, the British made an incursion into Tibet in 1904, reaching the capital, Lhasa. Many Tibetans were killed, and an unrealistic treaty was forced upon Tibet. Unrealistic because Tibet was already ruled by the Qing, so the Tibetans had no way to fulfil the demands that the British forced upon them. But the Qing's days were numbered. They sent out a general, Zhao Arfeng, who took over much more Tibetan land in their name, but the Xinhai Revolution in 1911 upended all that. And as China's tribulations continued during the warlord and republican eras, the 13th Dalai Lama became the ruler of Tibet and declared independence. A de facto state was established, but nationalist ruled China continually sniped from the sidelines whenever it got a chance in its busy schedule, dealing with the warlords and the communists and the Japanese. In the tricky world of international diplomacy, few other countries recognised Tibet as an independent country. Before he died in 1933, the 13th Dalai Lama prophesied that the future Dalai Lama and Panchen Lama, a less familiar role which I'll explain soon, could be killed, and Tibetans would lose their properties and their rights and become slaves. Such a time will come, he said. It was not a good omen for the 14th Dalai Lama, the friendly face leader of the Tibetan people that we all know and love. In 1939, aged just five, he was declared the Dalai Lama, after some process of spiritual divination. He keeps the role of the head of the Tibetan government until death, at which point he will be reincarnated. But the current overlords in Beijing have a different plan for that and have actually brought in new laws to regulate reincarnation, which is a strange move for an atheist country. Five months ago, the troops of Mao Tse-tung marched into Shanghai unopposed. That victory was celebrated in July at a gigantic parade in what is today the largest red city in the world, now so isolated, that these pictures took three months to reach Britain. In those three months, the Reds have changed the face of China and brought the world's largest country within the communist empire. After their victory over the nationalists in 1949, the communists began sweeping up pretty quickly. The independent Tibet honeymoon was over, and in 1951, Chinese sovereignty over Tibet was formally concluded under the so-called 17-point agreement. The agreement states that China is the ruler, but the Tibetan system, including the Dalai Lama, would remain. However, as you know, the Dalai Lama, along with the Tibetan government in exile, is, well, in exile, in India. So something has gone seriously tits up since then. Along with Tiananmen Square and Taiwan, Tibet is one of the unmentionable three T's that foreigners in China are often contractually obliged not to talk about at work. Even if you're in China, you have to get special permission to visit Tibet, and are closely monitored when you do. You can't go there alone, only as part of an organised tour. And there are stories of police swooping in on foreigners in Tibet who've sent private messages on their phone which the authorities deem subversive. For all the peaceful stereotypes of the people and the spirituality of the area, life under communist rule has been harsh. At the start, the 17-point agreement gave enough autonomy to Tibetans that social life basically continued as normal. But some areas in the east of Tibet were ceded to Sichuan province, and thus was subject to land reform policies that the communists were implementing across the country. With CIA support, this was the Cold War after all, 
a Tibetan resistance grew and culminated in the 1959 uprising, which Mao Zedong welcomed as an opportunity to crush Tibetan resolve, train up the troops, and fully implement the reforms he desired. In March, with the rumbles of artillery shells outside his palace, the Dalai Lama did a midnight run to India. The Tibetans' defiance only increased, and they battled the People's Liberation Army with weapons they had seized. But there was only ever going to be one victor in this fight. The Chinese lost 2,000 men, while the Tibetans lost about 85,000. And that's the Chinese count, so it could well be higher. Tezpur, in the northeast of India, has become known all over the world, for it was here that India received the Dalai Lama after his flight from Tibet. India offered the god-king of Buddhism a safe refuge from the communist Chinese. The Buddhist world prays for the day when the Dalai Lama will be restored to his earthly capital. With the Dalai Lama gone, genuine Tibetan autonomy became more and more of a facade. By the end of the Cultural Revolution, hundreds of thousands of Tibetan monks and nuns had vanished, either dead or in prison or disappeared some other way. Only eight monasteries remained in Tibet, where thousands had existed before. The Panchen Lama, who is the second-in-command in Tibetan hierarchy, and the figure who has the responsibility of finding the reincarnated Dalai Lama. While he had originally supported the communists, but became critical of them in the 1960s, which led to him enduring struggle sessions, he was put in prison, and eventually morphed into a politician in Beijing. But in the 80s he began travelling back to his homeland, and he wasn't particularly glowing about the communist legacy there. In 1989, shortly after giving a speech, he died mysteriously. A few years later, the reincarnated Panchen Lama was anointed in accordance with tradition, selected with the approval of the then-exiled Dalai Lama. This new Panchen Lama was just six years old. Three days after the announcement, he was kidnapped. No one knows his whereabouts or the whereabouts of his family. As for the Dalai Lama himself, his interminable call for peace, autonomy and negotiation has caused nothing but headaches for Beijing. Over the years, he has begun espousing democratic ideals for Tibet, despite technically being a theocratic absolute monarch, and despite being far from home and having no means whatsoever to implement any policies. But he's also been careful not to overtly criticise the Chinese government, and doesn't even call for independence. He's even condemned the CIA's previous involvement, saying that the Americans were only serving their own interests, which no one can really disagree with. Still, he wins nothing but contempt for his fair play. When British Prime Minister David Cameron met the Dalai Lama in 2012, China cancelled important meetings, and when the Dalai Lama was next in town, Cameron was busy with other things. Barack Obama's balls were a little bit bigger than Cameron's, and he met the Dalai Lama a few times much to the displeasure of the Chinese, who always had something to say about how the Dalai Lama had betrayed his homeland and is a meddling separatist. So it's safe to say that China is not ambiguous when it comes to Tibet. Like Taiwan and Hong Kong, Tibet is China. End of story. But it's not just prestige and historical claims which make Beijing hang on to this remote wilderness so firmly. It's also strategic. It's all about the most valuable resource in the world. The stuff that swirled around me everywhere I went in Jinshi. Water. It's not just Jinshi's water that makes the long and winding journey down from the Tibetan plateau via the Yangtze River. It's also the source of China's Yellow River, 
which is the cradle of Chinese civilization, and the Mekong, which quenches Myanmar, Laos, Thailand, Cambodia, and Vietnam, and the Irrawaddy, which goes through the entire upper section of Myanmar, the Brahmaputra, which skirts around the Himalayas and goes through India before emptying out into the Bay of Bengal in Bangladesh, where it causes devastating floods, and the Indus, which goes through a bit of India and the entire length of Pakistan. That's water for about half of Asia, some two and a half billion people. The Tibetan Plateau supports 37,000 glaciers, the largest reserve of fresh water outside the polar regions. Climate change and pollution threaten a lot of that water security, and China's grip on Tibet means that they have their hands on the pump. China has 11 dams on the Mekong River, meaning that Myanmar, Laos, Thailand, Cambodia and Vietnam all have a good reason to play nice with their big brother to the north. There are suggestions that China might be planning to reroute the waters of the Brahmaputra to Xinjiang, with a 1,000-kilometre-long tunnel, and turn Xinjiang into California, as one engineer put it. This would devastate China's southern rival, India. Elsewhere, demonstrations have erupted in Bangladesh, where a port in Gwadar has been leased to a Chinese company for 40 years as part of China's Belt and Road Initiative. The water shortages there aren't actually caused by China's policies, but the locals are pinning the blame on China anyway. As China extends its influence across the region, and challenges the USA for the top dog position, every one of her neighbours is beginning to squirm. So naturally, this issue was playing on my mind as I wandered across the bridges and peered at the early evening clouds reflected in the pools of Jinxi. I expect most other people around here also had glaciers and geopolitics on their mind, as they dined in the tiny restaurants or snapped photos on the bridges. As the sun began to set, a whole collective noun of photographers amassed beside the water, jostling in good humour with rival shooters for the best spot to capture the day's climax. Below them, the water bubbled with hungry fish, popping up for mouthfuls of mostly nothing. I had a Hong Xiao Rou at the Riverside restaurant, mainly because I could read it on the menu, and it's almost always good. It's sweet and fatty pork. And the version here made me realise how poor the food in the school's canteen is. Maybe Kelly's been right all along. A family, a mother, father and a boy, arrived at the table next to me and ordered the same thing, perhaps after seeing me shovel it home with my delicate chopstick skills. Then, after they got comfy, the dad said hi and asked to take my photo. Duly taken, we went back to our own worlds until I was interrupted by some kind of passing karate kid who challenged me to a paper-scissor-stone duel, which I confidently won. And then, the yelp of the boy in the family next door, going, Booyao! which means, don't want. The father laughed and turned to me. I'm trying to get him to talk to you, he said, but he is too shy. That's okay, I'm shy too, I said. I should have brought Penny, I thought. Then we exchanged WeChat contacts and I wondered if we'd ever meet again after this encounter. After dinner, I strolled around looking for water, big bottled water, for drinking. When out on the road in China, the eyes eventually associate hydration with the red and white labelling of Nongfu spring bottled water. It means farmer spring and is the most popular bottled water in China, bringing in billions of dollars in revenue every year. For a virtually omnipresent brand, it was surprisingly scarce in watery Jinxi. I couldn't seem to find a convenience store, just traditional clothing shops and shops dedicated to a single snack, many of which were closed now. 
I went back to the restaurant and saw that family working through another plate of Hongxiao Rou. So we did meet again. The restaurant only had small bottles, so I asked a couple of young girls where I could buy some shui, and off they took me, back down alleyways and across bridges. You speak Chinese good, one of them said. And you speak English good, I said in return. My English is too small, she replied. We found a hatch in the wall which was a tiny convenience store, and I bought a big bottle of water and two lollipops for the kids. Back in the hostel, a young guy had appeared alongside the woman who checked me in. As I approached, he said something I didn't understand, and I smiled. Why are you smiling? asked the woman. Why not? I said. We should more, said the man with a scowl. This means why. We should be happy, the woman said. And for a moment we three stood there in silence, with the man decidedly unhappy. But I was happy. I was happy in Jinshi. Next time on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, I had a decision to make. Whether to stay at the school or mission off and get a job elsewhere. I knew that whatever choice I make, it would be wrong. And so it was. <laughs>